Hello, and welcome to today's conversation about the role of cyber insurance in third-party risk management. My name is Hillary Jewelers, and I'm the head of third-party risk education and advocacy here at DemMinded. Third-party cybersecurity risk is an ongoing concern for many organizations, and cyber insurance is one of those areas that can be difficult to navigate. Many organizations are now adopting cyber insurance policies, but there are still some misconceptions about how to incorporate this into a third-party risk management program. Our goal today is to improve your understanding about how to evaluate and use cyber insurance coverage so you can use it to strengthen your third-party risk management practices. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Andrew Moyad, CEO of Shared Assessments. We'll be discussing different aspects of cyber insurance and how it can help your organization mitigate third-party cybersecurity risk. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you so much for joining us today. To start off, can you give us a little more information on your background and organization shared assessments? Absolutely, Hillary, and thanks. I appreciate the intro, and I'm really glad to be joining you on this uh, key conversation that I think is going to help a lot of third-party risk management and cyber and other risk professionals. Uh, just with respect to me, before I joined Shared Assessments a little over 18 months ago, I've actually been a TPRM practitioner and program lead. Uh, I started in cyber and morphed into this uh, more than 20 years ago, and I've been at three different global financial services firms. I've had the benefit of working as a cybersecurity specialist, an actual field assessor, and doing on-site assessments for years with hundreds of companies, and later even... Uh, led corporate insurance along with TPRM at my very last firm before coming to shared assessment. So I have years of leading corporate insurance uh, programs, including uh, purchasing cyber policies and having been part of that cyber insurance management. So I did join shared assessments about 18 months ago as CEO, and uh, I've joined a team of what are other risk practitioners and thought leaders supporting uh, more than 600 client organizations and thousands of individual practitioners all working in the assessment and ongoing improvement of their company risk programs related to suppliers. So whether TPRM, cyber privacy, and other areas around compliance and risk management. And one of the themes that we promote is ways they can leverage their own insurance coverages and understand how uh, those coverages related to their higher risk third parties uh, are meaningful to understand without actually creating an activity trap for yourself. And we'll talk about that as we go. Thank you, Andrew. Well, I'm eager to dive into this discussion and really help our listeners understand more about this important topic. So let's begin with a brief explanation of cyber insurance. How is this type of policy different from, say, general liability, and what does it typically cover? Uh, that's a great question. That's a great question. And where uh, a lot of procurement and other, you know, insurance and risk professionals are going to be more familiar with what's called general liability or commercial general liability, GL or CGL, uh, they really represent the most common forms of business liability coverage that most firms have been familiar with for decades. Uh, but despite what the term general in general or ge commercial general liability may mean to some people, the coverage doesn't actually apply widely to all forms of business risks, whether for your organization or your suppliers. In fact, these GL policies are generally designed to cover just two narrower areas of the most common historical forms of business legal liability. And that the first is bodily injury, and the second is property damage of others. So the term general really belies the, the range of added coverages you need as an organization and why people then get uh, cyber, crime, and a whole range of other coverages that apply. Even when people tell you, and I've seen this doing supplier risk reviews, oh, but I also have excess and umbrella coverages, that does not mean, just like the word general doesn't mean everything, that you will automatically get coverage in some of those areas like cyber. An excess policy or an excess coverage uh, will often simply extend the coverage that you have on general liability. So you'd have added, you know, say an additional million, five or 10 million 
of that property related or bodily injury type coverage, uh, where umbrella coverages might give you a little bit more, but generally will not tack on something like uh, cyber policy. It may tack on auto or other more conventional things, but cyber tends to stand on its own, sometimes get bundled with professional liability, which is different than general liability. Uh, but more often has really stood on its own. So it's really important to understand that and not let anyone tell you, well, I have broad general liability or I have a lot of excess and umbrella coverage. Is that good enough? The answer most of the time in relation to cyber risk is absolutely not. Uh, I will say uh, since cyber is newer and tends to stand alone, it's really important to understand uh, how it's different because many underlying policies, like we know with a, a very famous case that happened to Mondelez, um, many of your conventional policies will not cover cyber events. Uh, what happened in the case of Mondelez, uh, you know, from a hack, their equipment was rendered dysfunctional. Uh, it literally did not, as the property coverage would have allowed, blow up, catch fire, um, and get damaged in that sort of form. It literally turned equipment into what we call a brick so you could turn it on but it didn't do anything but because it wasn't destroyed in the manner expected by a privacy policy and because they didn't have cyber coverage uh, this was you know a, a major lawsuit that got litigated Mondelez lost and you know what they they really didn't do anything wrong they did what thousands of other companies assumed they'd be covered on so it's really important as that Mondelez story from several years back tells us is cyber coverage is a really important area that are defined and a different set of risks than many of your conventional coverages cover. So it's really important that, you know, the, the people who listen to us and then, you know, their suppliers by extension work with their brokers to understand whether and how your cyber coverage actually protects you and whether you have any material exclusions or gaps. In fact, a good broker will help you perform a regular gap analysis on your coverage, not only to say something basic like, well, you know, you don't have cyber or your cyber has a lot of important exclusions you need to address, but then even some of the policy terms uh, may not entirely be in your favor or be, you know, market-based any longer. So I think those are important things to understand because there are forms of cyber coverages that will exclude privacy breaches, that will exclude technology replacement, even social engineering events. Uh, all these things are very common occurrences, but there will be an exclusion and it's not companies or underwriters being cute. It's really a significant part of risk management for them. Third party breaches can be excluded. Certain regulatory fines would be excluded. And in some cases, uh, reputational damage and the costs associated with that may not be covered. And I'm not recommending that you ensure all of that gets covered in a cyber policy, but you should at least be aware of either yourself or some of your major suppliers, what's there, uh, because there are a lot of details that you need to understand, even though you're never likely to see the policy that's been written um, for one of your suppliers around this. So I think that's really important, you know, have that conversation with your broker and understand where you need certain forms of cyber coverage and what forms you should be concerned about with your particular suppliers. Wow, that is such great information. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about the costs that generally aren't covered by cyber insurance. So ransomware payments is one of those gray areas that confuses a lot of people because we've seen stories about major organizations actually paying ransom but then the FBI advises against doing this. So what have you seen as a general trend when it comes to ransomware payments in the cyber insurance industry? Uh, that's a that's a great question. And by the way, I, I stay in touch with brokers I've worked with and, and get updates throughout the year on uh, things that are going on in trends. And I would say, even though there was a bit of a downturn in the last year, but for the last five to six plus years, the general trend has been that ransomware payments have been increasing in frequency and size. But to your point, and based on the, the each unique case uh, from FBI and other recommendations, not everyone pays either, either from their policy or just out of pocket. Uh, most typically, 
cyber insurance will cover the costs, uh, though often there are limits or sublimits uh, on the major aspects of breaches, which is first the, the forensics, the, the type of engineering analysis and remediation planning firms need to do, uh, second around public relations and external communications. Uh, literally, people spend money with PR firms and others preparing and issuing you know, public press releases and other disclosed materials on the nature of the breach, what an organization is doing. A lot of that content gets vetted with the help of PR firms. And those types of costs are recoverable, both for you and your supplier, as long as they're not excluded. But it is a general expectation. The third major area is legal support. There will be claims processing, legal notices, litigation planning, even responding to regulatory notices or inquiries uh, would be areas covered, uh, again, where there is documented information, either from law firms, even your own staff time in that, in that regard, can be subject to compensation by a policy. And then the fourth and really important area, and this is where ransomware comes in as well, breach remediation. And that could be anything from the remediation of individual credit monitoring you apply to individuals or identity repair to uh, broader remediation, such as the costs of replacing infrastructure if you know it, it either is not ultimately unlocked by a ransomware event or there are additional things uh, that you just want to sanitize or never use again and then have to replace. So that breach remediation can cover a lot um, including some of the infrastructure costs. But even with those general coverages across those areas, policies will routinely establish specific duties on those clients uh, that can delay or prevent your ability to make a successful claim. And issues around such as the accurate representation of your cyber practices, because in the application process, you're generally not just quoted something, you have to make assertions about what you do in your programs, including around your third-party risk management. Are you using multi-factor authentication? Do you imply encryption at rest or with data in transit? Do you have an incident detection and you know prevention system? Uh, are you applying network segmentation? So if someone breaches one part of your network, they don't so easily get through and take the whole thing down. Um, those are all things that get checked and underwriters will go back and look at the veracity of what you've claimed um, after a breach, especially if it's a significant one. There are also duties on you to provide timely notice to the underwriter when you have a known or even a suspected breach. Um, I've been in cases where, you know, things have been stated in the public press uh, asserting that us or my organization or a major client or supplier we've used uh, was affected by a breach. And I've actually had underwriters come back to me or my broker saying, we know that you have a business relationship with this company. Or have you been affected by this? So people absolutely want to know, and will, you will have a duty to provide a timely notice to them. Um, you also have a duty to identify in advance any third parties you want to use, uh, because for all those areas, like the forensics, the law firm support, um, some of the remediation work, it's not simply a matter of recording your costs and expecting your underwriter to write you a check. That underwriter wants to know who you're using. They will absolutely take a view of whether a forensics firm is of sufficient competence, uh, whether a PR firm is a suitable one, whether you're using a law firm that's suitably qualified and, and more importantly, um, has reasonable billing rates. People will get into that. Your underwriters will, for some of the bigger cyber policies, want to know those details and know which law firms you plan on using, which forensics firms, which PR firms, because they can, by their policies, limit how much they pay out if you don't use an approved supplier in that space. It's it's really unusual. It's really unprecedented in the area of insurance. And it's very important that people are aware of that. So, you know, in the midst of all that, ransomware becomes one of those truly gray areas, um, though it hadn't started that way. In the early days, a, a ransomware hacker would routinely ask for a modest payment or maybe not so modest, uh, would provide an encryption key and then, you know, leave you alone. It would be very much a one and done type of event. But as this criminal markets become more lucrative and frankly, more cynical, none of those early expectations apply any longer where hackers are learning 
more about you and obtaining more information, including what your total cyber coverage is and start asking, you know, for levels that high. Um, they, in some cases, are not providing the encryption key back to help you unlock your network, even if you've paid. And the worst of all, and I, we hear about this, and I've, I've heard about it from organizations I've interacted with since taking my role here at Shared Assessments, uh, they will often use the intelligence they've gathered from the first ransomware event to re-attack you within weeks or months of your original payment. And that fear, by the way, is the basis for some people refusing to pay. They, they're not only dealing with you know, a, a bad player, but they don't know if that organization will come back. It's not as if you can write a contract with them and say, no, you promise not to attack me anymore. They, they just want their money and then you never really know what's gonna happen the day after or the week after. So what's really not surprising is that a, a growing group of these advanced persistent threats or APTs, including many supported by bad actor nation states are increasingly involved in these attacks. Um, and paying them could represent an immediate violation of OFAC sanctions. Uh, and so that's an important thing to understand. It's another reason the FBI and other US federal agencies suggest not being too quick to pay these criminals. So and let's not be too impressed by their engineering capabilities and pulling it off. They are criminal organizations. They're totally ruthless in their disregard for honest or legitimate commerce. It is potentially, for example, and I'm sure many people may have read in the press, Caesars, um, the, the Caesars organization in hospitality and casinos has opted from a recent attack to actually pay, where MGM has opted not to, and their costs have, you know, exceeded $100 million from this recent attack, but they are opting not to pay. And we don't know the details of who these attackers are, but they may actually be legally forbidden from paying, depending on who's in the background there. So that's a very important thing to understand, even if someone wants to. Um, and so as part of that general trend, these payments are reaching the limits of many cyber policies. Um, and not surprisingly, more of these underwriters are wanting to get involved in the actual negotiation of finding a, an amount of money uh, that can be paid to basically settle this and close the event. Cryptocurrencies are routinely used in these exchanges now, uh, more than just dollars or, or wiring, you know, checks. Um, and experienced ransomware negotiations firms are now adding, you know, advising clients about these advanced persistent threats, including ones that have a history of not actually giving you the encryption keys back. It's a really important consideration. So this is something to really promote. Um, the bottom line is all of our organizations have more people and more resources in your corner, but you have to find them and use them. There are even folks like, uh, I'm sure they won't mind me mentioning, Digital Asset Recovery. Uh, it's a shared assessments member whose entire business is focusing on helping people recover crypto or other payments you know, as part of a ransomware event that actually works out there. They have a good track record and more firms are doing this. Each firm has to decide on its own though, whether to pay a ransomware event based on a few factors that we talked about, compliance with laws, your actual ability and faith that you will be able to restore your, restore your network if you're paid, and the trust that your costs are truly contained without recurrence of events. So along these lines, there are increasing situations firms will not pay um, or you know, just to restore or rebuild their networks. Uh, their cyber policy should address those payments but it's also important to understand uh, where there may be exclusions, including, you know, to bad players or, you know, to an OFAC sanctioned entity. So there is a lot of nuance that's come in, you know, as this market has evolved. Wow, that is a lot of really helpful information. And it sounds kind of complex, but we are talking about cyber insurance policies that typically cover incidents that are happening within the organization. But what if your data is stolen or exposed because of a third-party data breach? You know, can you help us understand whether there are different policies that cover both the organization and its third-party vendors? Uh, that's a great question. The, um, the the quick answer is there are absolutely policies that cover both, whether it's stemmed from you or your third parties. But increasingly, that is not automatically guaranteed. Uh, there will be 
uh, quotes that are given or policies that are written that only cover one or the other. They won't necessarily automatically cover both. And if someone quotes you one in which, for example, they exclude third parties, it's really important to understand whether they didn't have enough information to quote that, what the added cost might be to include the third parties, um, and what circumstances might lead them to give you a more fulsome quote and policy offering. Some may feel it's not worth the risk and not do it, but those two ways of losing information aren't automatically covered. Um, that is from yourself. That's usually the baseline. Yourself is normally covered first. Your third party you'd want to be, but don't assume because you're quoted a certain amount of coverage and pay a certain premium that both you and your third parties are covered. A lot of people may have the view, well, it was my data. What difference does it make? My data was stolen. What difference does it make if it was stolen out of my network or another? It makes a big difference to an underwriter because if they are also going to cover third parties, they will start to ask more questions about how many you have, how many get access to your network, what kind of controls do you have around third parties. Um, again, there are many smaller policies, smaller coverages where they might not go into that detail. But as policies get larger, as this risk gets greater, I am finding, as, as in my own experience at my prior company, uh, every you know cyber renewal application was getting longer by the year. I, I could, in the early years, truly fill out a one-page application with less than 10 questions. And we got to the point where you know, we were looking at six, eight, 10 page applications. We were answering 50 or more questions every year just around our controls. And a lot of them focused on whether we understood our third parties who had access, how many were the primary keepers of records, such as primary uh, contact details for clients or employees. Uh, really important part of this. So, uh, that policy, you really want to make sure uh, will cover you and your organization. And there are strategies you can take to make sure your suppliers are also covered by asking them. And in the most extensive cases, um, you know, reviewing their certificates of insurance, asking them to become additional insured. But a lot of that work, I have to say, is oversubscribed. Um, being additional insured has a very specific meaning that should not apply with most of your suppliers. Um, and chasing certificates of insurance is not a good activity for most of your suppliers. But for your higher risk ones, points like that, making sure that you know your third parties and their third parties are covered and where necessary, you know, you're potentially named as additional insured. But that's that's a very narrow set of circumstances. Um, and kind of a long-winded response to a very good basic question, Hillary. But um, your third parties are not automatically covered, but they should be. And you should check that they're doing the same with theirs. Good to know. So we've talked about a lot of the benefits of cyber insurance, you know, how it can reduce the cost of third-party cybersecurity incidents and internal incidents. But what are some of the lesser-known benefits of these type of policies? Uh, that that's a great question. The, the the lesser known benefits and sort of hinted at when you look at the range of costs that I was mentioning going into this that get covered, um, because there are other features of doing the forensics, the breach remediation, the legal and PR support. Uh, that's a very interesting thing. You know, imagine um, if you had a property policy and your building was damaged and you wanted to send out a press release about nobody was hurt, our building is fine, we'll be back to work in a week. Um, you know, no one would imagine under a policy on, on the sort of classic or traditional property side that uh, any legal notice, any engineering work, all those other things would get covered because they don't. With cyber, because there is generally a cascade of impacts and costs that go beyond just the immediate loss of information, um, there, there are benefits where the loss of the information can be covered. Your technology infrastructure can be covered. Uh, there are additional coverages, and these are often riders um, that exist on the policies, uh, additional coverage for business interruptions caused by the cyber. You know, you may have costs to relocate people to another place, switch or build up another data center. Um, there may be 
other impacts to your revenues, uh, additional engineering support, the, the legal and PR costs, as we mentioned, even measurable reputational impacts can be covered. Imagine with your own you know, more conventional general liability, auto or property coverages, uh, things like a reputational impact for, say, you know, one of your employees crashing into somebody's building or another car, that would that would never be covered under some of those traditional policies. It's actually possible under cyber policies. So there are a lot of downstream benefits because the 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 ultimate costs of a cyber event cascade into a lot of other areas and it's it's really remarkable that the marketplace has evolved this way and so there are other downstream benefits that i think are really important to understand that would be covered if your policy says the right things and you've negotiated a good one okay so there's a lot to consider there but there's also a lot of potential value with cyber insurance I think it might be helpful to discuss some best practices about how to really evaluate different policies. So if someone's just starting their research, what are maybe the top two or three questions they should be asking a provider to make sure that that policy is going to cover third-party incidents? So that, that's that's a great question. You know, And just off the top of my head from experience and myself knowing, you know, I've filled out these long applications um, and there's so many features and riders on these policies. You know, my first reaction is there are probably more than 20 good questions to answer or to ask and get answered. But I think there are a few, to your point, about two or three to really focus in on. Um, and then by extension, understand with really critical third parties of yours is first, are third party incidents in the first place in scope as part of your baseline cyber policy? Is it an optional rider or is it just not going to be offered? It, it in very many cases will be in scope or will be an optional rider, but it's really important to know if third party events, because again, many people feel, well, it was my data that were breached. My data is supposed to be protected. It's not often what the policy says explicitly. So the first thing you really want to know is whether third parties are in scope because, you know, firms routinely have hundreds to thousands of third parties and often a high proportion of which will have access to or even separately store or process their information. So don't assume your third parties are in scope just because your data is in scope. So I think that's number one. Uh, number two, related to the third parties again, uh, will coverage for your third party incidents actually address the loss or corruption of information assets, as well as technology infrastructure they may be managing for you. Um, again, you may be harmed with the loss or corruption of both data and the damage to equipment, but that policy won't necessarily cover both. So you wanna know where your third parties are involved, will that coverage address both? Um, and you know, I'd say just third at, at a very high level it's really important to understand not just what's covered per the first two questions I suggested, but third, I would say, are there actually material exclusions or sublimits to the third party coverage? Will, will there be exclusions such as, and I've seen this, I've been quoted policies in which uh, we'll cover everything related to the loss, but not privacy. We'll cover everything except if it's a social engineering attack because, and, and the underwriter's logic is, you're supposed to have good social engineering controls. I'm not covering if you bombed on that. I'll cover if someone burst in or did a brute force attack into your network. So it's really important to understand exactly the specific exclusions or sublimits. And a lot of people may wonder, well, for my suppliers, how am I supposed to know that? You're never going to get access to their policies. You shouldn't even ask for it. But increasingly, certificates of insurance um, or even contractual terms you can establish uh, can stipulate where there are major sublimits. And it's really important to understand that. So for example, it could be a very basic thing such as, yes, this company, your third party has 10 million of cyber coverage, but there may be only 5 million, a 5 million limit on a social engineering attack, or there may be an exclusion on a data privacy breach. It's really important to see that because uh, certificates of insurance are 
starting to really capture those details where you won't see all the policy declarations, you won't see the policy itself, but you will see certificates of insurance speak to that. Again, I want to stress, Hillary, it's not then everyone should go chase certificates of insurance with most of their providers. That is a huge activity trap. I do not recommend it. It doesn't help a lot. Um, but, you know, those are things that you really need to look for. And I think those are really the, the top questions to start with. That's really good to know. I'm thinking as we're talking and we've talked about some of these challenges, well, what are some sort of definitive challenges an organization might face that would cause a provider to right out deny or limit their cyber coverage? Oh, that's a good question. And that happens. And often, you know, people are shocked. Um, and I, I've more often seen cases where uh, there's not an outright denial of that happens, but often um, a, a, a less, less of the claim is paid. Um, even if it was a, a legitimate cost associated with a breach. So, uh, but just on some of the typical challenges that would really cause the provider to deny or limit that coverage uh, would first be a lack of maturity in your own internal cyber and third-party risk governance practices. And, you know, you may, in a generic sense, answer questions such as, yes, I have certain policies, I have inventories of my systems, my data, my third parties. You potentially will get challenged on that. I have certain practices or SOPs in place because in, in these assertions you make um, in your cyber applications, it's very high level. They generally won't ask for copies of those policies, copies of those you know supplier inventories, but they will want you to make an assertion well, guess what? Somebody has to suddenly pay you five or 10 or $20 million. They'll come back and ask. They'll come back and ask, and they'll want to see evidence that you have those in place. So one of the things that happens is someone may have a very legitimate cost they want covered from a cyber breach, but when the underwriter comes back and looks, you actually have material gaps and key controls. You don't have intrusion detection systems. You don't have endpoint encryption. Um, you don't have really sufficient network segmentation or do regular security testing. You want to make sure any assertion you make doesn't then become the confounding factor in this. So that would be the basis and something people really need to be careful about. Um, they could also, uh, you know, you, you will find cases where from recent breaches that may have happened to you or the industry, um, you know, there then is a lot of pushback uh, on uh, you know, certain events or a more precise understanding of events that may or may not be in scope uh, for coverage. So it's really important to understand, and this is why it's good to always maintain regular contact with your broker, how some of these ransomware and other events are evolving because underwriters start to then get a more precise understanding and uh, take a different interpretation of what your policy really coverage uh, or, or really, uh, cover rather, um, you know, based on how an event falls out. Um, and I would say in terms of um, just also areas where someone may be less reluctant to give you a quote or give you as good a policy offer, I've seen, and this started more than 10 years ago, as some of these cyber monitoring services came out, folks like the bit sites, the security scorecards, the risk recons, that's publicly available information. And I saw where 10 years ago, this was an exception. Today, it's pretty standard practice where that underwriter will enlist one of those services, send you your own report, say from a risk recon, for example, and say, well, what, what are you doing about this? I'm, I'm not comfortable giving you a full quote or covering as much as you want because you know the following three things appear to be a problem for you. Um, I think it's really important to be aware well before an application starts because at that point you may be you know expecting within 30 to 60 to 90 days to have a renewal on your coverage um, it's important to be aware of how your company is being profiled by some of these services to make sure you're in a position to address some key gaps and some of them may be false positives that does happen but i think it's really important to be aware of that um, because that could become the basis of some saying i'm not going to cover you with as much this year, I'm gonna raise your premium or I'm not gonna be your primary provider, I'll only be a secondary provider. And that's an important 
change that's happened as well. Right. So it sounds like there's a lot of information that could come up after that policy has already been executed. But what are some red flags that someone might see in the beginning that might suggest the policy doesn't really have the right coverage or could cause problems down the line? Right. That's a, that's a good question. I think some of those red flags um, in, include uh, not only for your organization, but the third parties you work with, seeing that uh, there may be some major exclusions or sublimits on their policies, like that example I gave of, you know, someone might have the, the 10 million you're hoping for of coverage, but there may be a sublimit or even an exclusion on, say, social engineering. Um, and by the way, that's not bad. Those are all commercial factors, the risk management decisions people have to make. I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that people uh, try to pretend away or push your suppliers into removing sublimits or removing exclusions, but it's something you've got to factor in. And I think it's an important thing to understand. So red flags would include exclusions or sublimits. In particular, uh, you know, very often those just stem from what's happened in the marketplace and what an underwriter's comfortable quoting. Uh, there may be other factors where there were particular breaches uh, that you may not be aware of that have happened with that supplier uh, that won't, you know, weren't public record or weren't subject to your contractual notice provisions, but where that may have that may have caused the underwriter to do that. So a red flag would be one of those sublimits, but it's important to understand whether that sublimit or that exclusion is really going to apply to your supplier, whether they have access to your network, actual access to your data. I would not just by itself get scared about an exclusion or a sublimit, but really think from a risk management perspective, is it relevant to what I'm doing with this supplier? Do I need to care about this? Um, because that naturally happens. Um, I've been part of, you know, very strong, financially sound, you know, high credit rated financial services companies. Um, and even they uh, might have had certain exclusions or sublimits. It's part of what happens in the marketplace. You can't pretend it away, uh, but it's important to be aware where those exist. They could be um, absolutely a red flag, um, any of those limits. Um, certainly, uh, it's important to know uh, whether I think your uh, organizations, especially your more material suppliers, have gone through, you know, even tabletop exercises to think about what would happen in a breach event, uh, how quickly you're notified, what the claims process potentially looks like in a range of scenarios. You, you can't necessarily be part of those events, but to me, a red flag would be people who don't even go through tabletop exercises. Because I'll tell you, it is something that more and more of the industry is pushing for. Many consulting firms will do this. Many brokers are promoting this. Uh, a red flag to me would be if someone also, um, as part of their uh, insurance management or insurance evaluation process hadn't really gone through any tabletop exercises of how they would respond to breaches. So uh, I think those are, you know, potential red flags as well. Okay. So you have mentioned that it's typical that some insurance policies change over time. You know, maybe the providers increasing the premium or lowering coverage for various reasons. But what are some specific examples you've seen of a cyber policy changing because of an incident or changes in the industry? And how can an organization address those changes? Yeah, and I, I've seen less examples. It's, that's a good question, uh, Hillary. I've seen less examples of where it directly happened from an incident, but more where policies have changed just because of the risk landscape for the underwriters, because you know they take on pools of risk uh, they pool clients based on, um, you know, industry verticals they're in, uh, their sizes, the number of employees they have, depending on the type of coverage. And with cyber in particular, uh, generally, the more systems, the more data, the more employees, because employees are a big source of breaches. Um, and then the, the greater the revenues, especially if they need to cover business interruption and other sorts, those are all factors. And so as that pool of risk increases, that's the most significant reason why an underwriter might say, for example, I gave you your primary coverage. You know, someone might have 20 million of, of coverage, 
that doesn't mean they're doing it with one underwriter. You know, those were in the old days where only one company would cover you. Today, risk is getting spread out. Uh, you will generally have at least a primary and a secondary, sometimes a secondary, a tertiary underwriter, meaning literally who responds first. Your primary goes first. Your primary is at the highest risk. But once, say, you've gone over at the first layer, five or 10 million of coverage, then that next tranche gets covered by the secondary and then a tertiary, and depending on how many you have. So what's really changed in the landscape is uh, there are more and more providers only quoting secondary or tertiary levels. They know their risk is lower, so they can offer you something more favorable. I've absolutely seen scenarios where someone uh, who has been the primary cyber uh, underwriter for a firm is not willing to do that anymore. They're willing to quote something, but on a secondary or tertiary level, because they feel they've just taken on too much risk. And it may not be because of your firm. It may be just because of what they've experienced from the, the growth of their book and their claims history in the marketplace. So that's really important to understand. Um, that has changed. I have seen that myself when I've gone out where I could historically literally go to a single company, fill out their application, and just get all the coverage I needed from one. Today, you know, we're increasingly seeing presentations to a half dozen or more candidate underwriters where they will ask you questions about your programs, you know, often rely on a single application, but then, you know, decide if they want to be a primary or not, quote you at different levels. That has been a significant change in the marketplace. You will need multiple underwriters. And by the way, for other types of historical coverage, when you look at, for example, crime coverage or ERISA coverage for asset managers where that's relevant and other types of coverage, um, there are often a panel, as we call them. There will be primary, secondary, tertiary coverages because the risk gets spread out for some of the things that um, have just posed too many you know, recent claims. So in cyber, that is very standard practice. Again, for all but the smallest companies that might only need a million, two, three, or five, once you start getting in higher levels, you know, five and certainly 10 plus million, you are more likely to need multiple underwriters. And that's really important to understand and, and what they're willing to quote, the change in their deductible, um, changes in any year to sublimits or exclusions, all of that is part of the dynamic um, that, that really does change every year. Great, okay. I wanna shift gears just a little bit because we've talked a lot about the benefits of cyber insurance and how it's really important to understand that it is a guarantee that your vendor's gonna cover your financial losses. So what are some other important contractual considerations that an organization can use to help protect itself from third-party cybersecurity risks? Uh, that's a great question. And, and by the way, my my brokers have really emphasized this quite a bit. Just contractually, um, you need more with your suppliers than just a very basic expectation that your third party has cyber coverage of some set amount. And, you know, your own underwriters will be happy to see that you're pushing them because, you know, what, what often happens in a claim is, even if your third party was responsible, it's often your own underwriter that will provide the first coverage, will be, as we say, the first to respond. But what they will then routinely do, if it stemmed from your third party, is after paying you out, turn around and then make a claim against your third party. Your insurance company will do that and against their insurance carrier. And if they're not confident that that third party has cyber coverage, that litigation gets messier. Insurance companies negotiating with each other is a better exercise in many cases than having to try and litigate and chase your supplier. They're often literally then countersuing and claiming against the cyber insurance underwriter of your supplier. So it's really important that you even establish, and I've, I've had brokers and underwriters tell me this for years, an expectation that your third party has cyber coverage. And even if you can't agree ultimately on an amount that would be a minimum, um, you should at least try and establish an expectation, for example, where this is relevant, 
that your third party has cyber coverage uh, because that is then the first hook that someone will have and it makes an underwriter more confident. So contractually, you want to say that they've got cyber coverage. You may want to push for a certain amount. And by the way, never expect them to agree to the total amount. You have to decide as an organization the minimum amount. You know, if you believe your supplier needs 50 or 100 million, they'll never agree to say, well, then I'll get it. They'll generally want to negotiate what's the minimum amount you need to see from us and why. So think about that and think about, you know, what levels of coverage you need. Um, but there are some additional points such as, you know, whether you want to bother to get yourself uh, named as an additional insured, um, as I mentioned. And contractually, and my brokers have always reminded me of this, my lawyers have reminded me of this. It's not just whether someone has cyber policy. These terms interact with limitations of liability and indemnification clauses. And if, for example, uh, one of your suppliers says, well, yeah, fine, I'll cop to having 10 million of cyber coverage, but the limitation of liability is a million. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter that they have 10 million of cyber coverage. If you're contractually limited to something much lower than the cyber coverage, and by the way, that's often the case, um, you need to understand that may be all that you're able to get out of your third party, and that may start to limit what your insurance cover, um, you know, carrier can get. So they're very sensitive to, again, they, insurance underwriters can't go looking at all of your third party contracts, but it's an important thing to know for them that you are asking for cyber coverage, that you understand how limitations of liability and indemnification connect with each other, because I've seen a lot of organization doing cyber and third-party risk management obsess over how much cyber coverage someone has, getting a certificate of insurance. But a lot of it really comes to naught if the indemnification or liability limitations or your supplier has are far lower because that becomes your reality. That becomes all you can expect. So it is really important. And one of the great quotes one of my brokers has said to me over the years has been, Andrew, I would rather you knew what the limitation of liability was than chase certificates of insurance because a certificate of insurance gives you no legal leverage, but your limitation of liability is where the real legal leverage has. So, you know, I think people really need to think about that contractually and understand that interplay. Wow, so helpful. Um, Andrew, we've covered so much information today, but I'd like you to share some of your key takeaways and maybe some of the most important next steps for these organizations when it comes to cybersecurity insurance. Uh, well, uh, that's a, a great question, Hillary. Um, key takeaways, I would say, um, again, because so many people obsess over uh, how much cyber coverage, and it, it's good to ask the question, uh, you know, for the higher risk ones. But I think the very first important takeaway is uh, rely on your own cyber coverage first. That's actually the way it plays out in the marketplace where your underwriter for your loss and your harm, your underwriter will take care of you first. If If people think they can simply rely on a third party cyber coverage, you know, the, the chain of events the amount of litigation and time it can take to be made whole, because you can legally do it. You can not focus on your own cyber coverage and say, well, I'm gonna go after my third parties. That is a longer chain of events and an expensive and a very uncertain chain of events versus making sure you have your own cyber coverage first. Um, so I think a takeaway is before you overly obsess, know what your own organization's coverage is, know its weaknesses and its strengths, um, because you really want to make sure your coverage is protecting you first, including losses related to your third parties. And then the underwriters can go argue with each other in court later. But you want to make sure you're getting paid first and quickly. So absolutely focus on your own cyber coverage first, which may sound odd because I'm a third party risk professional. But this is one of those internal risk management issues where that risk transfer is never fully complete. You always own the risk, as we say. And this is a great example because I've seen organizations do this saying, well, I'm just going to go after my supplier. I don't need as much coverage. That is a bad philosophy. And I think, you need, you know, people need to avoid that. Um, 
always look to you know reduce your own risk exposures um, really as the most reliable safeguard. You know, in other words, I would say second takeaway: don't take comfort in the fact that you've got a cyber policy or your, or your third party does. The the real art of risk management is lowering those risk exposures in the first place. The the insurance is meant to be a backstop for you financially and legally. The insurance is not really meant to be your primary risk management technique. It's it's the bad approach. So think about, again, all the classic questions. Um, are you applying least privilege? Are you applying need to know privileges? Um, are you limiting access to data or systems um, to what's really needed for your suppliers to do their job? I think that's that's a huge topic that people need to spend more time on over just obsessing over, if, for example, reading a thousand certificates of insurance every year from all our suppliers. Uh, be that risk manager, lower those exposures. I think that's a really important takeaway. Um, and remember, you know that, that insurance is only one part of the total toolkit. It should never be the basis for ever lowering or delaying other investments you make in cyber coverage or your TPM TPRM program in terms of, you know, the monitoring you're doing, the assessments you're doing, it's just that that insurance is one part of the toolkit and it shouldn't be the primary one. Well, it is time to wrap up. Andrew, I always enjoy our discussions and this has been such an informative session. I'm sure that our listeners have learned a thing or two. I know that I have. Thank you so much for the discussion and sharing so much valuable information with us today. Absolutely, Hillary. I'm glad to. Uh, it was great having the conversation with you. I, I love the questions. And, uh, you know, thank you for giving me that time. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed tuning into this discussion with Andrew Moyad of Shared Assessments. To learn more about Shared Assessments, please go to sharedassessments.org. And to learn more about this third-party risk management-related topic and many others, we have thousands of educational resources on our site at themminder.com backslash library or themminder.com backslash blog. If you're looking at a network with other third parties in the risk space like Andrew, join Third Party Think Tank, our online community that is dedicated to third party risk professionals and is free to join. Connect with and post questions to your peers at thirdpartythinktank.com.